From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. Presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, Ben Mee of Dartmoor Zoo and author of We Bought a Zoo. He did dart him and I looked over the footage and he got him in the willy. He was more than pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> he was hopping mad. You know, oh, quite <laughs> oh my running God. Around, a jacket running around with a feathered dart hanging off his end. And Dr Jasmine Kelland of University of Plymouth and author of Caregiving Fathers in the Workplace, Organisational Responses and the Fatherhood Forfeit. They also face a lot of mockery and whilst in many ways the comments were sort of meant as banter, a lot of the dads were reporting that it made them feel really uncomfortable and again made them feel that they're not sort of welcome in that space. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, with another edition of our In Conversation With podcast, where we talk to interesting figures from around the region. And the face I've got opposite me in the studio at the moment, well, it's sort of more well-known for other things. You look like Matt Damon, but you don't. Anyway, so the person I've got in the studio with me, which most of you will know from the We Bought a Zoo story, but many other strings to what he does, is Benjamin Mee. Hi, Ben. Hi there, Stuart. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us. I've met you a few times. In fact, I think the first time I met you was at the Brain Tumor Research Facility up at the Peninsula Medical School. That's right, yeah, we were doing a tour. I'm an ambassador for that charity, um, actually doing a swim for Wear a Hat Day, wearing a crazy hat. Are we allowed to know what the crazy hat is? Well, it's one of the big generic pink top hats oh, yeah. um, made of foam, but decorated with flowers. And uh, I'm doing it with Heather, who's also another ambassador of Brixham. Okay, and we met because of that, but we were also with a supermodel, Caprice. It yes. happens to me all the time, I don't know about you. but Yeah, I remember that tour, obviously, vividly, because I've done a few tours of the lab, and it's always interesting to see what they're doing down at Brain Team Research, because yeah. it really is a charity that's very close to my heart, and I'm extremely interested in the dynamics of how they attack these really difficult-to-reach tumours that are sort of protected inside your brain by the blood-brain barrier, so it's a really difficult solve. But then, of course, they need the glitz of the odd ambassador and probably the most high profile one they've got at the moment is Caprice yeah. who had a low level tumour herself five years ago and she turned up for that tour I remember when I first met you in yeah. about 10 inch heels didn't she? Yes, yeah, yeah and, could uh, barely walk <laughs> but, and then we made a walk around the labs <laughs> but wearing a lab coat it's a great look Oh and, she was uh, brilliant I loved that I thought I mean this with love bonkers American but yeah. lovely decent person really interested in what was going on passionate about it yeah it was a great tour and I've got to say I've got to tell people but you're very modest because I spent an hour in your company. We talked about how you were interested in the science of it. We talked about how you'd got involved, which I'll cover in a moment. But then we came to a plaque on the wall and it said, this was opened by <laughs> Benjamin Mee. And I said, oh, look, this place was opened by Benjamin Mee of We Bought a Zoo. And you said, yeah, I did. And I went, <laughs> oh, that's who you are. <laughs> right? So yeah. me wrapped up in my self-absorbed world. I didn't know who you were, but we got on really well. And then yeah. it was like, ah, so it's very modest of you not to say, well, actually, no, I've been played uh, by Matt Damon in a film, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That whole episode does seem really surreal because obviously it was a couple of years of mayhem and yeah. then it all sort of died down. But it's the experience that keeps giving. People keep coming to the zoo on the basis of the fact that we were the subject of this film. Now so that, I'll come back to that in a moment because obviously that's a fairly large part of your story. But I want to touch on perhaps a much sadder part of your story, but why you got involved with the Brain Tumor Research Facility. And I've got to tell you, the work that's going on up there is world class. It's incredible. And it's kind of a hidden secret in the city. So how did you get involved in that? 
Well, in 2004, I was living in France writing a book about animal intelligence, animal behavior, and a column in The Guardian living in the sunshine. And I literally had one of those moments where I thought, I've done it, you know, I've absolutely, this is the perfect lifestyle for me. My two kids were growing up bilingual and it was a really laid back but productive lifestyle. We bought these two beautiful barns and suddenly my wife started getting these headaches while we were planning our shopping trips for furniture for the house that we were building mm-hmm. in, the, in the thing. And I thought this is unusual because she likes buying furniture, you know, <laughs> who doesn't like to go shopping, shopping. for furniture <laughs> after all this uncertainty? Mm-hmm. And eventually she was diagnosed by their local GP with a brain tumour and I spent the night in a hospital down in the south of France one of the most uncertain nights ever because there was the scan which showed this massive black ball in the middle of it Mm. and all I knew was that the next day she was going to be airlifted to Montpellier which is the sort of centre of excellence for brain tumours in the south of France she had a very strange night and I watched the helicopter go off into the distance in the morning and without you on it without me on it I had to drive and I realised I wasn't really in a fit state to drive, you know. The level of anxiety and uncertainty. I didn't even know she'd be alive when I got there or she's going straight into an operating theatre or anything. And I always remember actually parking at Montpellier was really hard, as in any hospital. The hospital was beautiful with palm trees outside, which is another story because they spend about 7% of their turnover is on the grounds and the environment because they understand that that's where people spend a lot of their time and it really helps with therapy quite different from Dereford but (laughs) I sort of double parked somewhere at the car park and I'm walking through thinking I've just got to get into this ward and find out what's happening and someone kind of started to say hey monsieur reaching out to put his hand on me and I looked at him I gave him such a look and it's like don't touch me do not touch me I'm going through here and I saw his hand just like in a retreat and I thought never underestimate the stress of people around hospitals you don't know Mm. what their story is they could be in the most horrific life event which we were But anyway, it was operated on and extracted by one of the best surgeons in France, apparently, and he excised 100% of it. But it was a glioblastoma grade 4, which just will come back. And this was the thing. My French wasn't great, but I could understand this. You know, he said it will come back. And I said, no, no, surely, you know, sometimes they don't. He said, no, it will. Mm. And she was given a sort of 10 months to a year But when we went to see the consultant, Madame Campello, down in Montpellier again, she looked at our two little children, aged three and one, and looked at Catherine, who was aged 40, and we just thought, we're going to pull out all the stops here and try and keep this lady alive as long as we can. But it was just always going to be futile, and that was the thing. As a health writer, I'd contacted 10 different places around the world that had these innovative treatments. I remember Mm. scorpion venom in California because that can cross the blood-brain barrier. So they hollow out the venom, put in some kind of medicine and inject the scorpion venom can go into your brain. Iron filings in Germany, they inject iron filings into the tumour and then manipulate them with an MRI scanner, a massive magnet, magnet. Yeah, so yeah. literally pulling them back and forth to destroy the tissue and all these different things. And this was like in 2004. And I thought, yeah, yeah, they're all so close. They're so close. You know, mm. one of these will be fine. And unfortunately, in 2006, after we came to the UK and we're having a scan every month, I've spoken to a lot of people now who live between the scans and, you know, you get the all clear for that day. And then for that week, you're feeling pretty good. And then after the next week, you're thinking, has it come back? Anxiety. I just don't yeah. know. And, what uh, an awful know, way to live. Is it going to be? Uh, you're living with a time bomb, aren't you? You're exactly that. 
it must be so bad for the person who's actually doing it. It's obviously very bad for people around them as well. Mm. But yeah, and then one day the whole We Bought a Zoo thing happened <laughs> and we decided to move back to this country to rescue Dartmoor Zoo. So we transposed over from the French medical system to the UK, which is quite different. And I had to explain to the GP what a glioblastoma was and that we needed a scan every month. And he faxed through to the wrong place and they were on holiday. And it was I had to make quite a stand in the end and say, look, this is what we expect. And very quickly, unfortunately, around Christmas time, 2006, we got a letter back from one of the scans saying it had come back in eight places and was inoperable. Mm. And none of the treatments that I'd explored around the world could deal with them, mm. you know, the multiple return. And again, it was just utterly, it was like, that's it, that's your lot. Devastation. It's mm. palliative care only from that moment on. And it was three months of looking after her in the house. And then she died on the 31st of March, 2007. Sorry. But of all the places in all the world she could have died, you know, she was in England surrounded by loving family. Mm. Um, it was very lucky. It was very gradual. There were no huge personality changes. She sort of just receded in. And people have worse experiences of losing people. Yeah. And I was always kind of trying to look for the positive of that and keep the kids in the loop with everything. And they've adjusted, as people do. But, yeah, that's why I'm extremely interested in how, why these things come back. She had a scan just before we left France, a radioactive scan to show cell division in the body. And it showed absolutely nothing in the brain. There was no active cell of any kind. And I'm thinking, so how's it going to come back then? And it just, bang, it just, just came back. back. Like, how? And I spoke to Oliver Hanneman, the yeah. head of the Brain Tumor Lab. What a lovely man he is and he's, so fascinating. He's fantastic. Isn't he? Someone said he's a scientist out of central casting, isn't he? Because he's, <clears throat> yes. he talks like this and he's extremely precise and he will use a lot of jargon. And uh, if you really concentrate, you can keep up with him for a couple, yeah, for of, a a couple, couple of minutes. Sentences, yeah. and then well, even right. at that brain tumour event, he started off the first slide, I'm with him. Second slide, yeah. you're beginning to lose me. The yeah. rest of them yeah. could have been talking Greek. Yeah. I had no it, idea, but he clearly is very you bright You know he's doing good stuff. That's he's the thing. doing he's amazing doing good stuff. stuff. Yeah. Passionate about it as it's well. It's lower grade tumours they work on down there, isn't it? Mm. And I said to him, go on, do some glioblastoma stuff. And he goes, no, there is another lab which does a glioblastoma. But also, it all does tie together. People think that they're not related because grades one, two, and three behave very differently from grade four but actually there is a continuum and some of the developments of the early tumors could be applied to the others and i once saw on a screen down there you know how you go into these kind of dark cubicles and there's a genuine boffin sitting there in a is. white coat yes. you know, working on stuff and they were working on a prion which is from Croyfield's Jacob disease. You remember mm -hmm. mad cow yeah, disease? CJD, yeah. And these are things that are just indestructible elements. You, know, you can't boil them out. You know, Once they're in your body, they're just mm. phenomenally aggressive. Nothing to do with glioblastomas. But he was kind of modelling the behaviour. Like, what does a unit like that do? How does it behave? Mm. And he sort of turned the screen and said, oh, I shouldn't have been doing that. You know, sorry, that's actually extracurricular, but I was just really interested. I thought, that's what's so good mm. about science giving sponsoring scientific research mm. don't say i need these results you know in six months otherwise your funding's cut say here's some money do what you think you know play be creative because yeah. science is there's a lot of creativity yeah. in science and allowing those guys the freedom to explore these other avenues that's how things are going to happen i think well, I was lucky enough to get Mel Tiley in the studio, so I won't go over all that they do up there, but I will repeat the story that while we were up there, I spoke to various PhDs and postgrads, whatever, from all around the world, and I was saying, what are you doing here? Why are you in Plymouth? And they, just, they looked at me as if I'm mad. It's like, because this is where it's happening. <laughs> this is, this yeah, is yeah, the yeah. absolute pinnacle yeah, yeah, yeah. of research, and let's hope they get to the bottom of it. I know Oliver Hanneman is very 
philosophical, but I don't know how he stays so philosophical when he says that if you look at many, many cancers that we've thrown a lot of money and research at are, if they're caught quickly enough, now are largely survivable. Mm. Brain tumours, many of them aren't. Mm. And it's purely money and samples. Yeah. If they had more money and more samples, they are convinced they can make them survivable. Yeah, And that yeah. must be... <laughs> so frustrating yeah it's amazing isn't it and there was that discussion around consent for biopsies um, from the tumor and it's a bit like giving blood it should be that you have to opt out why wouldn't you say yes of course some of my tumor can be used as a sample if it's going to help someone well i remember caprice saying did you get my tumor and they said well no and she said well i wish you had my freaking tumor (laughs) yeah she was great so you've had a hell of a journey and i'm sorry you had to go all through that a sort of weird segue i suppose but you were born in quite unusual circumstances <laughs> i've read you were born in a bushfire in australia so your journey was always going to be unusual wasn't it yeah mate well it wasn't out there with the dingoes actually on fire but my mum always said i was born in melbourne in 1965 yeah. and apparently everyone who says you know melbourne 65 you know oh, well, that was when, the, like bushfires, when the bushfires nearly yeah, reached yeah. the sort of perimeter of the city and um, she could smell the smoke in labor and they're thinking do we have to evacuate the hospital oh and stuff. my god yeah, my parents were working class from Doncaster and Sheffield. And in the very early 60s, my dad had become a teacher and became interested in... He was ridiculously good at maths and statistics. And he invented a machine, a bit like a Rubik's Cube crossed with a slide rule for mm. predicting steel flow in the steelworks. And he took it proudly to them and said, look, with this, you can save a load of money. And they were like, yeah, very good. But we've got these new things like called computers. Does that know about that? So that he got right in at the very beginning of the early development of the computers. Not with Alan Turing, but is a massive fan of Alan Turing's work. He used to say the early computers that he worked on were the size of a sort of four bedroom house. And they could do very simple maths. And he used to keep a calculator in his wallet because they'd evolved by the time you know, he was still yeah. alive. And he, looked, he used to take it out and just look at it and shake his head and think, yeah. wow, look at that. And I always yeah. think I've got an Apple Watch. I think he would just go mental if he knew about I the development of I remember my dad things. getting his first flip phone, a Motorola flip phone, <laughs> and he showed me that it opened and it shut and he put it in his pocket and he went, look, it's just incredible. <laughs> and now we carry computing yeah, power yeah, in our yeah, pocket yeah. that they could have only dreamt yeah, of. I know. It is amazing. It really is amazing. And this is a sort of huge leap forward of mankind, I think. I think there was fire way back, maybe 300,000 years ago, and then there's the iPhone, I think. It's the next, <laughs> it's the next it's like, bang. <laughs> suddenly like it's happened. The whole world, you know, you can talk to anyone in any continent. And going back to the Australia thing, it's like he was seconded out to Ford or British Steel and then the Australian census. And so I was born out in Melbourne. But at the age of six months, I came back. But I got the passport and I've been out a few times. I love Melbourne. And I really like Melbourne. I was surprised yeah. how cool melbourne is because you it's think of sydney incredible. as like the cool place and actually yeah. melbourne has got a lot going for it. it's very confident isn't it it's a very european feeling city but cosmopolitan it's got everybody there i remember i was lucky enough to meet of all people the culture minister in melbourne we got talking about the sort of aboriginal issue and i said you get a lot of racism and problems <laughs> in melbourne and he laughed he said well if you did you'd have to be racist against everyone he said we've got over 50 nationalities here we've got nearly 60 languages yeah. in melbourne alone yeah. it's like wow yeah. so a very very cosmopolitan city yeah i love just the casual palm trees everywhere and they're yeah. really nice restaurants and world-class art galleries as well i used yeah, yeah. to take my kids in and still got the photos of them marveling at the andy warhols and stuff i really really like australia what i like about it is although it is cultured there is a sort of anything can happen it's still a it's bit wild back, westy yeah, yeah. 
It's like you're driving along and there's a shrimp shack. Have you seen those ones? It's like a little shack with a 20, 30 foot shrimp <laughs> on the top. You can see across the desert. Like the prawn on the barbecue. Yeah. Yes. And you think it's because there are no grown ups to say, no, mate, you can't do that. There's no, <laughs> it's no just like, you can do anything. We're going to put a bloody great big shrimp on top of the thing. And it's like, yeah, great idea. I think I will be going back there a few more times. I went to the yacht club over there because I was helping Pete the sailor with some PR for a voyage he was doing to Australia and I met the Commodore over there at the yacht club. I called him sir and he looked at me as if I was completely mad because I thought, <laughs> well, you call the Commodore of a yacht club over here, sir, but yeah, yeah. no. And yeah. strangely, yacht clubs in Australia are interested in sailing, which doesn't seem to be much the same as yacht clubs over okay. here that seem to be interested in class. So I got this conversation and discussion with him about how welcoming yacht clubs are, where there's a sort of hierarchy and all that sort of thing. And their yacht club is just about sailing. Yeah. That's all they want, young people sailing, they want old yeah, people yeah, sailing, yeah. they just want to get people sailing. Promoting sailing. And I was talking to him about the sort of class divide in this country. Pilly Quinston, he said, you see those two guys at the bar there? And there were two guys sitting on bar stools at the bar having a beer. He said, the guy on the right is unemployed and lives on his boat in the marina. The guy on the left is Melbourne's richest man. He said, they're having a beer, and they're talking about boats, and they're talking about girls, they're talking about life, and it does not cross their mind that they shouldn't sit next to each other and talk. And I thought, God, we've got a lot to learn, and we've still got that awful sort of rich, poor, class divide system in this country. Yeah, it's a totally different culture over there, isn't it? And it's like, if it is linked to the fact that they're descended from convicts or whatever, they certainly (laughs) feel they are. Yeah, it's like there's a certain, you know. <laughs> certain section of the population out there that's kind of evolved without the fetters of the class system and all these other things. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's all kinds of bad stuff going on and they've only just yeah. seen the light on global warming and coal and all that stuff. Yeah. And there is racism and there is sexism big time. Yeah. But what I like about that place is the humour. Yeah. And I did a lot of book tours and film tours and stuff, which I was very lucky to be taken on yeah. both in the States and in Australia. And in America, you can often make a joke and nobody understands no. and they kind of take it really literally sometimes. I mean, they can be really, really sharp, but in a, you know, there's a slight disconnect. Whereas in Australia, they're just on it straight yeah. away and back at you. You know, yeah. I remember... And they love you coming back yeah. at them, don't they? Because I thought yeah. they'd be all sort of, oh, you're whinging poms and yeah. take the mick out of our sporting teams. And yeah. they kind of do a little bit. Yeah. But if you fire back, they yeah. love it. They, they love, love good yeah. banter. Yeah. And did a sort of breakfast TV sofa thing with these three harmless looking old ladies. And they kicked the crap out of me straight away. They sort of right in there. <laughs> whoa, whoa. So like, yang about, you know, back at them. It was really enlivening. It was a great joke that I forgot that you just reminded me and it's how can you tell when the british airways jet has landed at sydney he said you can still hear the whining after the engines have turned off <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true very true look i've got to come to the zoo in a minute but i was reading that you have what was described as a turbulent relationship with the education system which surprises me in that you went on to be a journalist you're so interested in science how did that start what's your journey through that i remember when i first went to school I was taken by my mum, you know, must have been in the late 60s to nursery school. And she led me in through the door, told me what it was. I had no idea what it was going to be like. And there was just a load of kids there staring, you know, and they all kind of look up and stare at you. Mm-hmm. And the teacher, you know, some strange lady, they sort of trick you a bit. The teacher takes your hand and then, you know, you're kind of like, yeah, then what's happening? And, you, and then you look around and your mum's gone. It's like, boom, doors closing, mum's gone. Like, Wait a minute, yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't, here, yeah. I didn't sign up for this. Who are these bastards? That was it for me. Never. Every other school I ever went to, I had the same sort of, I don't want to be here. I just do not like it. You know, I went to a nice school, went to a grammar school, Rygate Grammar School. Same school as Keir Starmer, who was a couple of years ahead of me. I, but I have no recollection Election. of him oh, at I thought all. you were going to say you're like best no. mates or something. <laughs> 
but I think he was probably one of the swats. You know, he just didn't chime for me. And I had a big family at home and we talked a lot. We explained things a lot. And if you asked a question, it would be answered, you know, courteously, everything, every detail. There were no sort of, well, there were a few sort of taboo areas, I guess. But in general, your curiosity was encouraged. Whereas at school, it was sit down, shut up. And I remember putting my hand up and saying, you know, why can't we do such and such? And the teacher said, because. And I remember thinking... Because what? Mm. That doesn't make sense. That's not even grammatical. You know, what is this place? So I just thought, right, I'm bored. It was naughty as I could be. And I was expelled in the end three times. And one of my proudest moments, really, but looking back, I was quite pleased. My dad, who was quite a disciplinarian and had worked incredibly hard, come Mm. up from a pit village to give us a really nice upbringing in Surrey. He had five kids to look after and he went home to work in the city, which he didn't like. And he came home and there's this ungrateful one chucking it all away. And he said to me, with the final, you know, expulsion report in his hand, and he's saying, <laughs> he says, Benjamin, so there is no way to run any organisation if you form any part of it. And I thought, yeah, good. That's exactly my That's plan. me. That's <laughs> me, down to a T. <laughs> so I went off and worked in the building trade as a labourer and mm-hmm. decorator. And I learned bricklaying because I liked the look of it. And I ended up, I really, really like bricklaying. Outside in the sun, you know, all this stuff. But the trouble with that is it can then rain and you rain. can't work. We'll come back to that. But also people might decide they might be going to angle grind next to your head and you've got no control over it. It's like... Could you just, you know, not do that, please? It's like, no, it's rough and tumble. And so I set up as a little company doing garden walls for people where, yeah. and I loved it. It was really, really cool. But in that journey, I also was reading an article in The Times about a guy who is experimenting with dolphins in the Red Sea with pregnant women. And apparently the dolphins would scan the embryo. Yes. And because, of course, it's like ultrasound. Oh, they can go yeah. straight through. And they would assist with the birth. So as the baby came out, they would then lift it above the water and push it onto mother's breast because they know it needs to breathe. And apparently as well, these kids grew up slightly more chilled than the control group. I don't know how they measured that. It was a Soviet experiment. But actually, there is evidence that prolonged ultrasound of an embryo can have an effect on the brain development later. But... Also, when these kids came back a year later or however long, the dolphins recognised which kids they'd helped. Wow. Because when they scan you, they can scan... It's like a 3D image. They get the whole thing. I heard this. It goes right through all of your tissues so they can see bone, muscle... They're building a picture of you. Whether you're cross or sad because of your blood distribution. If you're angry, then you've got your fight and flight and all your Mm. blood is in your muscles and so there's nothing in your stomach. Whereas if you're very relaxed, you have a different readout. They know. They can't lie to each other in that sense. They're kind of constantly scanning each other and everything around. But anyway, I remember thinking, this is really interesting. This is like, wow, why is this... page seven story in the times it should be on the front page you know new life form discovered on earth you know as good as us or weirdly different why is no one interested in this i want to be out in the red sea doing experiments and i'm thinking oh who's this guy oh professor senso i'm a bricklayer with three o levels (laughs) damn all those people telling me all that time you should sit down and study Study, they were right but they weren't asking me the right way and they hadn't told me if you study, you know, you can write about animals or you can go and study animals. All they were saying was, sit down, shut up. Mm. And if you explored the trajectory they had for you, it was solicitor, barrister, whatever. 
and that just didn't float my boat. No. I'd seen Born Free, the film with the McKennas, yeah. and the guys driving around with a Land Rover with a lion on top. I'm thinking, that's a good that's job. That's what I, I want. I want that job. What's that job? You know. Well, you did in the end. And exactly. <laughs> I've literally but, got a lion and a Land Rover, but I don't drive around with them both. So tell me, I want to get onto the zoo bit. Very briefly then, you studied psychology and science journalism. So if you could take us that little bit and then to yeah. what brought you to buying the zoo. Having read that epiphany piece about the dolphins, I figured I need to go back into education. Mm-hmm. So I did two open university courses in a year because they said you can't do that. And I, <laughs> it was really, really hard, but I did. Got into UCL to do psychology because I was based in London already and that was the best psychology department in the country at the time. And then did a master's in science journalism at Imperial College. My third year dissertation was on the evolution of dolphin intelligence. And then in my master's degree, halfway through the course, there was a piece in The Independent saying they were discussing the International Whaling Commission moratorium on whaling, which was kind of a big thing at the time, the whole world discussing it. And the leader in The Independent said, at the moment, there's no scientific difference that we can discover between a cow and a whale. So the moral argument is unclear. And I thought, well, I've just done 10,000 words on the difference between a dolphin and a cow pal, you know. And Here the good, it is. The good yeah. thing about that course was that they took us around the Independent, for instance. So I saw Steve Jones, who was like the deputy science editor, and Tom Wilkie, who was the editor. And it made them real. I thought, it's just a bloke. You know, he's a slightly grumpy looking bloke, but, you know, he's <laughs> listening if you ask him a pertinent question. So I called him up on a Sunday and he accepted the piece and edited it really well. So it took about 500 words out which I've still learned from his editing Mm -hmm. of that and off I went and so I started writing about the very small market for animal intelligence pieces unfortunately (laughs) which is something I'd really like to explore more I think the world is a little bit more receptive now Mm. so I started I was a health and science and then of course travel adventure travel is always really good fun you know Mm. I unfortunately had to learn how to ride the half pipe in Lake Tahoe and skydiving and dog sledging and all these things how terrible it was really awful seven years of my life then I did get a bit like that thing where you look back and think, what am I actually doing? You know, because the uh, why question. It was yeah. fantastic seven years experience, but I thought I could just do this forever and I won't have explored what it is about dolphins and other animals that make them so like us. You know, has anybody actually shown that these animals have a theory of mind that they are positively actually sentient, that they understand Mm -hmm. that we are all individuals and they have a sense of self. I thought that's actually a really big thing that Mm -hmm. I should be directing my time towards. So I started writing this book on humour in dolphins, apes and elephants because if they have a sense of humour, then they do have a theory of mind. You can't make someone laugh deliberately without understanding that they have certain expectations and beliefs and so you know that's how it works is by literally empathizing with your audience so if you prove they can do that and they do do that then how do you make them laugh how do you know they're laughing well this is the key thing and i spent a long time devising an experiment (laughs) i never thought i'd ask the question how do you make an elephant laugh it sounds like the start (laughs) of a joke does it well elephants make each other laugh there's one in portland i think it was and she used to come up behind the others while they're feeding and lean the trunk across the back of one and pull the ear on the opposite on the side opposite you know side, like you're in the wrong way and then they turn around and bump into each other and she just like retreats i said to the keepers why does she do that she's because she thinks it's fun yeah and gorillas all the apes and definitely dolphins all do these things but as you say you've got to kind of work out how yeah. if anyone's interested if you google orangutan magic trick you'll see a little orangutan laughing like a drain at a trick out of surprise and my experiment involves 
getting a hand-reared laboratory-bred animal, the one that's been rescued from laboratories and is now in a sanctuary, so they're completely used to cooperating in non-invasive experiments. Getting one, you know, I've got my eye on, there's an amazing place in Japan where they're looking after all these chimps who kind of wander in and say, yeah, I'll do an experiment today if you like, if you give me a nut, mm. and get them to wear an EEG headset and then show them pictures that will make them laugh. And I've devised a series of images and cartoons which I know apes will find funny. So you show them all kind of blank images and then you show them something where they can... Uh, and as they laugh, if they do, you get a particular set of brain waves called a P3N4. So it's a positive three and then a negative down to four. And it's completely characteristic of humour. And P3N3 is not the same. So I would do it if I laughed. Everybody, as you get a joke, you go, ah, P3N4. And pain, anxiety, you can get P3s and N3s and all kinds of other things. But P3N4 is characteristic. So if you get a P3N4 out of a chimpanzee, I think the world will change. And everyone will go, damn, we have to admit that these guys are completely sentient. sentient. Not just like, oh, they have some feeling. They're just like us. And therefore, they should have personhood rights under international law. So killing one is murder rather than just like, oh, dear, you shouldn't have done that. You know, Mm -hmm. here's a fine. Still to come, Dr. Jasmine Kelland of University of Plymouth and author of Caregiving Fathers in the Workplace, Organisational Responses and the Fatherhood Forfeit. I was having to talk to managers about not asking people in their late 20s when they were going to be having a family. That hiring managers would ask an interview and in my role in HR, I'd say, you know, that's not acceptable. You don't answer no. that question. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. So you did that. But actually buying a zoo wasn't on the radar, was it? You bought the house and it happened to come with a zoo, is that Yeah, I mean, this was the thing. I was happily writing my book on human animals in France, having the life. And when my dad died, my mum had to downsize a bit from a five-bedroom house in Surrey down to a little cottage. And we thought, shouldn't have to do that. My brother and sister came up with a plan. Why not buy a massive house, pool all the resources and have three generations living in one house with like a sprinkling of grandkids and then grandma's there and keeps her going. And mm. I just gave it the thumbs up from France thinking, you know, off you go, that's a good plan. And then eventually, after a year or so, the details for Dartmoor Wildlife Park, as it then was, came through because fitted the bill mm. just at the top end of the price range but it was really basically exactly the same price as a five bedroom house in Surrey 30 acres of garden 13 bedrooms at the time seven lions three tigers yeah. bears yeah. wolves flamingos you know and we just thought ha oh, oh, ha oh, this is mad which it is and was of course. but we went to go and see it just to sort of rule it out because the house was good and we thought, well, you know, we all like animals. And I was doing a column on DIY in my building background from, you know, The Guardian. I thought, yeah, I can fix a few things. And that's it. We realized that it was going to fold and it was going to be turned into a nursing home. And all the animals, which were of low conservation value at the time, would have been destroyed. I thought, that's bad. You know, that's you a bad thing. You know, this is like a little jewel in this British countryside. Mm. You've got lions in the bluebells around the corner from, you know, just mm. ordinary from Dartmoor. So we pulled out all the stops and I figured that we could get it up and running three years, then start getting your chimpanzees, your orangutans, and I mm. could sit and play with them. Fifteen years later, we have some little sake monkeys and a mixed exhibit of tamarinds, but it was more than a white-knuckle ride. It was 15 years of incredible hardship. But now it is amazingly stable. And wasn't it... In- the first day or two that you had a big cat escape 
Yeah, we did. And your brother-in-law my alerted brother, you to this. Yeah, uh, my brother understand. Duncan, yeah. He, oh, brother, we sorry, were, yeah. I was sitting in the kitchen of the big house talking to the head keeper who was subsequently played by Scarlett Johansson. But Robert didn't look anything like Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> um, yeah, my brother burst in and shouted, One of the big cats is out! This is not a drill! And then ran out again. And I'm thinking, he never, ever talks like that. And also, I've never, literally, that's the only time I've seen him agitated and worried. He's a private investigator. He's got like absolute nerves of steel. Mm-hmm. And he just is not flappable, apart from... If, apart from being, when a big cat's on the loose. When a big cat's on the loose, and it's our fault, effectively. Because you, we, you know, we were the new owners. then. Yeah, well, well, there was a BBC camera crew on site at the time, so there was no hiding. And this was one of my things, because I was a journalist and I'd organised for there to be a BBC series about the place, because I thought it was going to help to publicise it, because, you know, out on its own in the middle of Sparkwell, you know, you need to be able to reach into the outer world for it to thrive. And of course, all the crew were, you know, the grandchildren of the previous owner and some, you know, various crazy people who happened to still be there. They hate, you know, no press, get them out of the way, you know, no, no press, no camera. I'm like, no, we're going to film every damn thing because we're going to do it right. And mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure that everything we do is above board, as ethical and law abiding as we can possibly be. So, yeah, there was a camera crew there. And yeah, someone had foolishly tried to clean out the Jaguar all by themselves and they'd failed to shut the outer door into the enclosure and lock it before they went in. And the lock makes a very distinctive sound. So, you know, the Jag, who's a very, very clever cat, he heard the door go down, didn't hear the lock, so he just came and pushed the door up with his paws and burst through into the little house with his kid and amazingly didn't pause to kill the kid but ran down the path. Could have gone on to Dartmoor, down into Sparkwell. Such a bad thing. There's a school and there's a pub. (laughs) My kids were playing in the picnic area, you know, the day before, you know. And he's like the most dangerous and stealthy of all of the animals. But actually, luckily, he had another part of his eight-year plan of if he got out was to fight the tigers in the enclosure opposite. <laughs> so he jumped over the wall for They'd the moment. He'd been upsetting enemy. Right, <laughs> eight years, you're having it. That is one chance of freedom, and he jumps into a contained big cat enclosure with three tigers in it. It's like, no, mate, you know, go to the Dartmoor and live it up a bit. There's no, <laughs> Kill a sheep or there's no future in there for you. But luckily, we managed to get two of them in. He picked a small fight with one of them who kicked the crap out of him really quickly, really convincingly, right. without causing any proper injuries. And then they separated. And of course, you know, the boys are going, which one do we shoot then, boss? And I'm going, don't shoot anything. Shoot them with a dart gun, don't No, the dart gun, well, for a start, when I finally, when we did get the tiger in, and we just had the jag. I said, right, now, dark gun. And they said, oh, dark gun don't work. It hasn't worked for 17 years. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Maybe it's time to get a new dark gun. But so, yeah, we had to get another guy came down from West Midlands with a dark gun. But they take a long, long time to work. It's not like in the movies. They take like 15 minutes. So if you dart them, they get really pissed off. <laughs> when Bob Lawrence came down from West Midlands the next day, 17 hours later, he did dart him. And I looked over the footage and he got him in the willy. He was more than pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> he was hopping mad. You know, quite bet. <laughs> oh, you know, my running God. Running around, a jagger running around with a feathered dart hanging off his end. We probably boast about it now, that jagger. Just, <laughs> well, where else was he going to hit? You know. <laughs> it is a very exact science, but no, he did it. he did it for us. <laughs> 
at what point in all this hilarity, which I'm sure at the time didn't seem like hilarity, did you decide to write a book about buying the zoo? Well, it's inevitable, really. If you're a journalist, it's not like being a normal person. Everything you do is you've got a little notepad and you write it down and you think, oh, one day I might use that. And, oh, that was funny. And, and you know, you've got uh, thousands of pages of notes that you'll never yeah. use. But nothing is real until you've had it written down, published, and then other, someone has said, yes, you know, they like it or not. So you wrote the book and I think you said you were lucky enough to get a really good publisher mm-hmm. and it kind of went viral didn't it yeah it did yeah it was the agent was a genius mm. patrick walsh he managed to cause a huge fuss at the book fair and got a bidding war going on and got oh. lots of money and i was actually on a train going down to france to get my dog when patrick kept calling and said penguin have gone up to a hundred thousand a hundred thousand like wow which you needed because the zoo was in trouble which we wasn't it? absolutely needed to get the infrastructure up to speed because the bank loan hadn't come through and there were a lot of costs involved to get the license to be nice to them when they call i'm like no shit you know <laughs> and uh, so they call and they'd be really nice to me and then he'd call back and say harper collins have gone up to two hundred thousand i'm like two take it take 000. it <laughs> yeah exactly and then there were two or three other bidders and anyway it went up to three hundred thousand pounds by the time I'd kind of halfway back up France. And I remember standing in Roscoff, waiting for the ferry, looking in the estate agent, looking at this chateau for like 200 grand. I'm thinking, I could buy that. I could just stay here, you know, because yeah. I lived in France. Never mind this zoo thing, I'll just buy that. And I looked at all the windows and I thought, well, that's a lot of DIY, actually. It's a liability. Yeah. And the zoo desperately needed every penny of that. So yeah. I signed it all over to the zoo so they actually owned the contract for the book. So the money Beneficially taxed. Yeah. And it just absorbed it all and then asked for more as the zoo will so if you got your three hundred thousand for your book rights which you must have thought was fantastic and this has helped you survive another winter or so for Ah, the zoo and then there was another maybe 250 over the next two or three years through international sales so canada was like 50 grand or germany was a lot and then you get these lithuania was like five thousand pounds and all this stuff and you think it very 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 welcome because These were 2007, 2008, 2009. Tough years, tough, tough Massive years. recessions. Yeah. And what some of the wettest summers ever, yeah. because this is when global warming really kicked in in a particular way. And in Augusts and Julys, which is your main trading months, it was just a washout. You know, the rain yeah. just came and stayed. And, and I know you love the rain. Yeah, I think I got a bit of PTSD from that. I just sat, <laughs> sat in my office in my cottage. There's a sort of corrugated plastic roof just outside. I just hear this rain just all the time. And it's just pummeling, you know, and the ground was soggy. It came symbolic of the struggles you were it, going through as a zoo. Yeah, and... it was like, it was literally, what more could we do? You know, we're here, we're open. A, the population have got no money at all. They're all in massive recession. And B, nobody's going to come to the zoo in this weather. I mean, literally, there were sheep drowned in their fields that year. That's not supposed to happen. There was a farmer's market washed away in August one time. It's like, that's unusual. This is not normal. It felt like God didn't want there to be a zoo there, you know, Mm. and we were pushing against it. I thought, well, I'm going to make sure it stays. I'm going to do every, I'm Mm. not giving up. You're going to have to try better. And it was literally just, you know, stubbornness and luck and borrowing loads of money from a few really cool, well-meaning, rich people, not banks, banks. Yeah wash their hands of it a long time ago yeah. and me of them really but every now and again you get a rich person with a good heart and a long view and you know that's what you need to make these things happen
Well, they say, don't they, banks are an institution that will lend you money if you can prove you don't need it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I must mm. say, some banks, well, not all banks are like that. <laughs> Seeing as I have some members who are banks, banking <laughs> members, no, they know they do a good no, job, but, they are but all like sometimes that. incredibly frustrating, especially when you've got a vision and yeah. you know what you want to do and you yeah. know you can make it work. You just need people to help you get yeah. over the line. And you had a load of calls, I understand, from around the world, from people saying, oh, didn't you get one from Argentina or something? Mm. Yeah, there was a guy, I got used to getting you know unusual calls once it hit the global market, and this guy was saying, I missed me i read your book i saw inspired i sell my house i buy a horse farm i'm like Darn, you no, know. don't do it the whole <laughs> point in the book is to tell yeah. you what a nightmare yeah, it this is, is like yeah. i say the next book is definitely going to be called never buy a zoo never buy a zoo never buy a zoo is such a bad idea but i hope he's okay in argentina and horse farms probably a good idea but yeah, then I got this call from an American lady who said it would make a great movie. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, thank you very sure, much. Sure, yeah. And then she says, I'm calling from 20th Century Fox. I'm like, whoops. Okay. You know, okay. Yeah. That was the beginning. That was Julie Yorn, the producer who spent two years moving it up the line. She said there's a one in 10 chance of it getting made once I've sold the rights to them. But she kept pushing and it got through. And suddenly one day the calls got a bit more real of like, Okay, I remember, because few and far between, but there's an area code for Hollywood, which you recognise very quickly on your phone, and you always take the call. I would take a call from Hollywood, (laughs) if anyone wants to make a very dull story of my life. Yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, Well, I was cleaning out the drain at the bottom of the drive during a storm, because it was blocked, and we used to get told off if the load of water would flood into the village. So you're in the rain? They'd blame us. With your hand in a drain full of stuff? down a drain, area code Hollywood, so I'd take the call. And they said, yeah, Matt Damon has agreed to play you in the movie. And I'm like, (laughs) what? You know, what? And it was like that bit in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where the clouds part. God speaks directly to Arthur about the rest of his life. And he says, Arthur, like this. And it was like, Matt Damon is going to play you in a movie. And it was like one of those moments (laughs) you think, wow. You know, I looked up the drive and it was like the sun had come out. I didn't know if it's still raining. I thought there's that little beacon of hope now. This zoo, this struggling, wet, miserable place. So there's a future. And we've just got to hang on for the amount of time it takes to make a Hollywood movie. And we'll be okay. That was two more years or 18 more months wow. of banks snapping at your heels. HMRC issuing closure orders. But you're so telling nice. them, don't worry, Matt Damon's going to play I'm me saying, in a film. Yeah, don't worry, guys. Yeah, Matt Damon's going to play me in a movie. And of course, <laughs> they just add that to the risk factor of this guy's nuts. You know? Yeah, he's gone completely loose. <laughs> Increase the payments. Oh, my God. And you got to meet Matt, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. They took us out to the film set for a couple of days at the end. And he seemed like a very nice man, very environmentally aware and friendly, good with the kids. And, yeah, he took the film because he wanted to work with Cameron Crowe, but also he's very much a family man and has four kids. And he read the script and thought, you know, if his wife died, how would he cope, you know? Mm. And he really understood this sort of tailspin feeling that you get. And that's what he wanted to engage with. And it's quite funny, we were sitting on a sort of American chat show with him and then Thomas Hayden Church was on my other side and Matt Damon does this really emotionally charged account of how he thought about the camera. And I'm like literally tearing up thinking, my God, you know, this guy's really thought this through and this is it's true actually, what are you saying? And Thomas Hayden Church, who played my brother, Duncan, and he leans across and whispers in my ear and goes, So uh, do you actually have a brother? And I'm like, <laughs> 
like, yes, mate, you've been playing a real person all this time. Because they did change a lot of the <coughs> script in there. I mean, they set it in yeah. the States to start with. And as you say, your head ranger was not looking like Scarlett no, Johansson. No. You met Scarlett Johansson? I did meet Scarlett. Did she yes. ask after me? She didn't, no. I don't think she said any words, really. I blew it badly with her because the kids ignored her completely because she was dressed like a zookeeper. They see a lot of zookeepers. And there was a monkey, Crystal, from Night at the Museum, who they did recognise. <laughs> They're like, yeah. let's play with the monkey. And they kind of brushed off scarlet hands. I'd already had a conversation with Matt Damon about they all wear these like Leatherman tools on their belts yeah. in the film, and I thought I bet those pouches are empty and they don't know what to do with that Hollywood. So I said to Matt Damon, said, hey, "What's in your pouch, Danny?" And he brought out this thing and he showed me and he could use it and I thought oh, yeah he actually can use that. So I thought well, that worked. So I'll try the same line with Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> and she's not impressed. And she's like, "I don't know." And she looked inside. And there was this tiny, weedy little penknife which wasn't going to be ever any help. And I sort of jeered a little bit and that was that you know I just went mm, that's useless or something and she went, mm, yeah and that was the that was a Hollywood <laughs> don't sneer at Hollywood stars I haven't got much longer but I want to ask you about a couple of quick things before we finish I mean one was your work with children and I recall you talking about the effect plants can have on learning and mm. on exam results and things mm. so you want to just tell us yeah, briefly about that yeah well when I was a journalist a health writer and doing psychology as well a professor called E.O. Wilson who's recently died he coined the term biophilia in the sort of 80s, I think. And it's a measurable biological effect that nature has on well-being in humans because we are animals. You know, where we're sitting here in this kind of cosy studio, actually, I'm lucky because I can see just out the window through a few glass doors, I can see a tree. You I can't, can see nothing. This is really bad for you. And I mean, it's like, you know, people spend all of their lives in rooms like this and not seeing trees in cities and wonder why they feel stressed. And... Actually, if you can be exposed to some kind of nature every day, it's really, really measurably good for you. If you show a photograph of a tree to somebody, it literally lowers their blood pressure slightly. And they've done experiments where you give half the exam candidates plants on their desks and they do slightly better than those who don't. That's so incredible. I did a lot of kind of work and writing on the idea of biophilia. And then when he came to the zoo... And I got quite depressed because, you know, wife died, major financial crisis, single parent. I think you're allowed to. It was pretty heavy. And I used to drag myself outside and chop wood. And, you know, I remember doing some clearing of some brambles in the rain. And I really didn't have the energy to do it. But I thought I must, you know, I'll do something, try and make some tiny inroads into this thing. And by the end of that day, I felt slightly better than I had at the beginning. And then the next Mm. day, I kind of felt achy. And I thought, yeah, of course, biophilia is the way through. And I kind of dragged myself through with using this process. And now we have like 100 or so volunteers and we take referrals from people with mild depression and social exclusion from GPs. So instead of taking Prozac, you can, if you fit the criteria, you can come and volunteer at Dartmoor Zoo. And we see the same trajectory, people going from, you know, dragging their feet to, you know, running up the drive, saying, what can I do next? And we've extended it out to, we've now got four groups of excluded kids, partially financed by Plymouth Children in Poverty and a couple of other charities. Great charity. Including the police, because the police understand that financing schemes like this is going to reduce the costs of policing in the future. And we teach them basic sort of building skills and they build enclosures. Some of the materials are paid for by these outside bodies. And so we get, like for instance, we've got this amazing pair of Scottish wildcats now who are breeding for reintroduction back into Scotland, which is perfect. 
and the enclosure was built by excluded kids who have now gone back into education through the process of building that enclosure. So it's like a win-win-win. It's one of my proudest things at the zoo is that that whole side of it is up and running. That is wonderful. And don't you work with ex-service people as well, people who suffer PTSD? Yeah, totally. And again, we tried to get just ordinary soldiers along. It's free labour, you know, because I thought it's good fun for them and we need a lot of stuff doing. And it turned out they're all in Afghanistan. So, you know, Mm. it was really hard to get hold of these guys. And then someone said, well, try Hasler Company, which is where the injured and wounded guys and girls end up. And these guys are just not like the active service people with PTSD. It presents completely differently from how I was expecting. And they're grumpy. They're really mistrustful. That's the key thing. They don't like you. And they don't make any secret of the fact they don't like you. And they don't have any interest in any of it. Mm. They just want to go back to be with their mates who've been through the same thing. So you've got to get these reluctant people energized somehow. So I find the best way to do that is to put them about six inches away from the Jaguar. That really gets them going, and they suddenly they're standing on their tips, oh my god, like this, whoa, bloody yeah. hell, look at that. And obviously, there's a fence, but but it's still that one of their first, it's sort of thing, such yeah. a visceral experience, you can't be indifferent the first time you, you see that because your primitive midbrain is in control and it's telling you, big danger, mate, yeah, concentrate, <laughs> that's a bad thing. And it's one of their first questions is, can he kill you? It's like, yes, he could, to- Very easily. He could totally kill you, you know. And that's when they first make eye contact. They look at you and they're like, wow, wow. You know, they're talking yeah. about the thing. And it's often the way in. I was talking to some animal therapy people. A lot of other problems that people have, suddenly the first time they'll make eye contact and talk is if it's a dog or a horse or, yeah, in this yeah. case, with those particular cohort, I find the most useful is the really, really dangerous big cat. And then once they're kind of energized, stick the jag inside the house. And then you say, OK, guys, we're going to go in the enclosure now, dig a hole for a platform or whatever. And they're like, wait a minute, you know, yeah. is it safe? Is it safe? And they love that because it's adrenaline. And yeah, they, yeah. one of the guys said to me, he said, being in there, he said, it's like being on ops. I said, it's just not like being on Helmand Province, mate, is it? Come on, it's, like, it's not that dangerous. And he says, yeah, but we don't know that. He says, all we've seen is a big cat go in that hole in the house. And as far as we know, we don't know you, we don't know your locks, we don't know anything about it. It could happen. Mm. So we're all on edge, and they have what they call a QBO, which Mm. is a quick battle order. So they make a plan of, you know, if something happens, I'm going to climb the fence, I'm going to go down the moat, I'm going to, you know, jump. And one of them, he said, my QBO was, I just told the sergeant I was going to break his ankle with my shovel so I didn't have to run so fast. (laughs) And all the dark humour comes out, and they've worked out all day because they're digging hard, and they've worked as a team closely, and they've done something worthwhile. And they've had a massive adrenaline rush because they've been effective, as far as they're concerned, in almost in a combat situation all day, safely. And those are the days where they go back to base and they have a breakthrough conversation with the shrink because they've ticked all the boxes for the day. Normally, you know, you might lure them to the gym, but they haven't done it. You know, it's not really that worthwhile. And, you know, they haven't had any mm-hmm. adrenaline. So they might go out and ride their motorbike. And, you know, this mm-hmm. is how most service people who die after conflicts is through violent accidents. And mm-hmm. that's assuaged hugely by working inside the lion enclosure or the jag enclosure. And I think it's a program that if we can get some statistics on it properly, we can roll out to other zoos all around the world because every line enclosure needs maintenance and there are soldiers and people all around the world who could benefit from doing that maintenance. Mm. And we've just got a grant to study four different groups of soldiers doing this exact thing with some cortisol tests that show the stress and some Ministry of Defence approved questionnaires. And Mr. Mercer, Mr. Johnny Johnny Mercer, Mercer, he's come up and he's done the whole JAG experience himself and... 
he says if we get the study right, he's going to make a big noise about it at the MOD and see if we can get it as a sort of designated military therapeutic activity of volunteering next to big cats. More than just buying a zoo. We have run out of time. Ben, thank you so much for giving up some of your time. I don't think I've ever had a guest back twice, but I might <laughs> ask you because there's literally half my oh. questions I haven't asked. Oh, I'd love to um, fascinating talk to you thank you so much for what you've done thank you for what you do at the zoo thank you for what you do for the service people and for the children and for supporting business the chamber's here to support you thank you for what you do supporting us that's really appreciated ben thank you oh thank you very much i've had a great time and now it's time for chamber chat where we talk to chamber members and other interesting people and organizations from across the southwest Hello there and welcome back to the Chamber podcast In Conversation With. This is part two, Chamber Chat, where I get to talk to interesting people from out of our membership about all sorts of things. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jasmine Kelland from the University of Plymouth. Dr. Kelland, or can I call you Jasmine? You can. Yeah, I, can I call you a lot of things, Jazz. Would you prefer Jasmine? Jazz. Jazza. The Jazster. Yeah. Jasmine. You feel Let's do Jasmine. With. I understand you've written a book. I have to ask you about fatherhood, which seems like a strange question to ask a woman so forgive me but what's that all about okay this book is focuses on the experience of fathers in work particularly fathers it's a book it's a book yes <laughs> who focus focus on and their experiences in work when they take an active role in caregiving but it's very much a book about looking at gender equality and about trying to improve the workplace experience for mums and dads so it's not just about fathers it's about trying to improve the experience for mums and dads Okay, and I understand it's there's an expression you use about the fatherhood forfeit. Yep. What does that mean? What's that concept? About? Yep. So the fatherhood forfeit particularly relates to caregiving fathers, and it outlines some of the challenges that they experience, and that's what came out of my research. So the fatherhood forfeit has four main elements, and that's what I identify within the book as the challenges fathers face. Would you like me to go through them? Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about it. So the first part relates to actually when they're applying for jobs, I found that fathers are less likely to obtain a role that's conducive to caregiving. So they're less likely to obtain, for example, a part-time role that would help them manage caregiving. Mothers score more highly in the process and therefore they're more likely to get the job. So that's automatically a barrier for fathers and that's the sort mm. of first fatherhood forfeit. The second one relates to their status and they are consistently reporting to me that they felt second secondary status. They always felt that no matter what the arrangements were in their household, even if they were the primary carer, they always felt that they were considered to be secondary. Mm. And so when they would go to events with their children, for example, they would always be met with comments around, where's mum and mum couldn't make it. Oh, it's a shame that you're here, that mum couldn't Mm. make it. And that really affected the men that I spoke to in my sample. They found that quite difficult and conveying a message that they weren't really welcome and that in some way that Mm. their positioning was secondary. Because often we do, when we think about a child, we associate that child with a mother automatically Mm. and for some families the mum isn't the primary caregiver and the other element of the fatherhood forfeit that came up was that fathers face social mistreatment in the workplace so when they want to take an active role in caregiving they face social mistreatment in a way that mums don't so mums have different challenges in the workplace but the social mistreatment for fathers particularly related to being viewed as idle and people assuming that them wanting to take an active role in caregiving was because they were in some way a little bit work shy and they were trying to avoid working full-time rather than wanting to spend time with their child or actually financially that being more viable for their family and for some people it was a financial decision surely we're still 
you're not there. I mean, I'm not a dad, but I can't think of anything more scary and more hard work than raising a child. So (laughs) surely we've gone through that. And you're finding we haven't? No, I mean, I didn't expect to find this, really, when I started looking at interviews with dads, interviews with dads, interviews with mums and interviews with managers. And I didn't expect this. I didn't expect so much social mistreatment. And it was really embedded in all of the interviews. There were lots of examples. So fathers reporting being considered to be idle, feeling that they real sort of sense of suspicion said that a lot often people didn't really understand it and managers were reporting that as well people mm. didn't really get it they're a little bit trying to wrestle with why are you doing it I don't understand what's wrong what's going on in that family that mm. makes you do that and they also face a lot of mockery and whilst in many ways the comments were meant as banter a lot of the dads were reporting that it made them feel really uncomfortable and again made them feel that they're not welcome in that space that's unbelievable, isn't it? Mm. It just occurred to me, actually, that a friend of mine I served with in the police service has just retired after 30 years, and so he's become the primary caregiver to his daughter mm. and his wife, who's, if it's relevant, but is considerably younger than him and is still working. And she has a... Um, I'm only assuming from the title she has, and I won't tell you what the title is, but she works for a global brand mm. with a global title, and her role is global, I'll tell yeah. you afterwards, <laughs> that she's earning quite significantly. So it makes absolute sense yeah. for him to mm. be now the primary caregiver. And it doesn't occur to me that that would be a problem, but you're saying some people it's viewed with suspicion. Yeah, and for a lot of people, this wasn't this research wasn't based on, am I interviewed one person down the pub? It was over a long period of time, lots of people that I spoke to, and I've had numerous research projects since, and these themes have still been coming out as pretty current really dad's still experiencing quite a negative and workplace experience and quite a lot of outright discrimination really in the workplace that is sad to hear what made you want to research this hmm. was it something that you'd come across and then you wanted yeah, to yeah it into was that's exactly detail. why because this is part that came out of my phd and when you embark on a phd project it's quite a meaty old project so you have to spend a long I'll time <laughs> deciding <laughs> you're gonna like it yeah you really gotta like it and so and I do went, you still like it i do still like it i'm still interested which is you know phenomenal really but i spent a long time trying to think of the ideal topic as something that would really interest me and i wasn't getting anywhere really and i wasn't finding anything that really put fire in my belly and then i did find that i looked a little bit broader and i thought what well, actually really annoyed me and irritates me in my everyday life and this issue came up with the way that myself and my husband have always largely worked full-time and we face quite a lot of challenges with that and particularly with my husband trying to get out of work to pick for school runs that sort of thing it's always been quite challenging Mm -hmm. and quite often the outcome was it's just kind of easier if I go because I would have more flexibility and I was really interested to see if anyone other families experienced similar issues and if that was a common theme and it became apparent pretty quickly that it was. And it's very unusual if you don't mind me saying for a woman to highlight an issue that is affecting men we're hearing a lot at Mm. the moment and rightly so about women raising issues that are affecting women yeah quite rightly i'm not looking at all but very Mm. unusual for a woman to raise an issue that is affecting men yeah i do think it's two sides of the coin now i think women at work particularly with regards to motherhood i think there's been a lot of research on that and a lot of discussion on that and a huge amount of progress on that and certainly as a working mum a lot of the comments that have been levied at some of the dads in my data and certainly at my husband people wouldn't say that to me i don't think they wouldn't think that that's appropriate to say to somebody but I think there's this assumption that it's kind of okay to say these things to a guy because it's only banter and sometimes we're supposed to be tough yeah Yeah. but it's it's not and it's very much two sides of the coin and sometimes 
over the years when I've talked about these issues, for example, at International Women's Day, there has been pushback and said, you know, this isn't a women's issue. I think it very much is a women and men's issue to try and improve it for both of us so that people can choose whatever's right for their family. And I'm not saying that everyone has to go to where they're both sharing the childcare or that a male caregiver is better. It's about choice. It's about, about options. Able, exactly. Being choosing to, what yeah, works yeah. for their family, whatever that might be, based on whatever factors that might be, so that people don't face discrimination or workplace mistreatment as a result of their choice of whatever's best for their family. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing it. So what would you like to see improve or how can things improve? I think there's a number of things that organisations need to do, particularly organisational actions that people can take in steps within their organisation to try and improve the workplace for caregiving fathers. And awareness is a key issue, I think, to be aware of some of these challenges, because to most people that I speak to, it's quite surprising. And a lot of people that I've spoke to over the years, and I've been doing this research, have said that sounds awful and that wouldn't happen here. And then when I say to them, actually, I've interviewed five people from your organisation. And it it really is And they say, oh my goodness, I really didn't realise that that was something that Mm. was an issue so I think it's raising awareness is really quite key looking at organisational policies making sure that they are as equal as they can be for mums and dads and Mm. also making sure that they're really gender neutral and there's no room for nuance around that and central for a lot of organisations is looking at active role modelling within the organisation so if for example if you have someone on your senior leadership team who's a dad and wants to go and pick their children up on every Thursday on their school run tell people about it tell everyone that's what you're doing encourage other people to say it's okay to have a life outside of work we acknowledge that and we want to encourage that i think that's really important i only found out relatively recently that the former director general of british chambers of commerce who's a man in his 30s early 40s i don't know so he got a cbe when he left he's Mm. dedicated his life to it and he is an active parent Mm. and he's same-sex couple with children which Mm. I didn't know. He didn't make a big thing out of it. But a couple yeah. of times I spoke to him and said, I'm sorry, I've got to go. I've got to go and do the school run. And I mm. thought, well, if you can do it, as Director General of British yeah. Chambers, mm. hopefully things are changing. Definitely. Aren't they? And I think that's really, really important because the last chapter of the book focuses on recommendations and things that organisations can do. And that's based on interviews that I've had with organisations who are really winning in this area and who are really, really successful in this area. I've got a lot of dads who are taking share parental leave, for example access to all their entitlement, mm. really good retention levels, all these great stuff that we want to hear about as an HR professional. And the feedback is that it's really important to be really honest about that and to be really role model so people know that they don't have to be the first in and the last out. No. That's not the only way to be a really good worker and to do well. During the pandemic, I encouraged my team to go out for walks by saying, I'm going for a walk. Yes. And we yeah. had walk and talk meetings in the park and stuff yeah. like that. You know, mm. I think it's important that leaders show that this is okay and have solidarity. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. Funny enough, when you mentioned about policies, you know, I know policies are important because that's where you ultimately refer mm. back to, but it's about tangible actions, isn't it? It's, about yeah. th- it's not just having a piece of paper or on its staff handbook or on the yeah. computer. It's about actually seeing that through and yeah. making... The policies make- aren't enough. The policies need to be there and they need to be there so it's really clear to people what they're entitled to and people know if they're expecting a baby they know what entitlements they can get it's really important to have that there but it's not the only thing it really isn't and lots of organizations who have fantastic policies but they're still not being accessed because people are worried how it's going to be perceived they're worried about their career implications they're worried about the financial implications they don't really understand what that's going to mean for them 
and they are just generally nervous about it and therefore the policy might be there but they just might not access it and that does happen in some of the larger organisations for example that have completely equitable leave so they have the paternity leave is the same as the maternity leave policy mm. and some organisations do have that and I did a webinar last week with some people in the USA and who were saying that they have brilliant policies but they're not being accessed which is where some of the other issues come in I think where you're looking at reactive really role modelling from your senior leadership team and challenging some of the social mistreatment rather than just laughing it off as banter directly challenging those issues and letting people know that that's not actually acceptable okay. in a way 30 years ago where you might have had certain comments for example on when I first started in HR I was having to talk to managers about not asking people in their late 20s when they were going to be having a family. Uh, hiring managers would ask an interview and in my role in HR, I'd say, that, you know, that's not acceptable. You don't answer no. that question. But I haven't heard that question asked for about I should 20 hope not. years. But I get it. I mean, I run a small business. Mm. Where I think at one point we had 12 members of staff and me and my business partner mm. looked around the room and he said, have you realised that everyone we employ is a woman of childbearing age? Yep. So in theory, we could come in one day and the whole workforce could say, we're pregnant, we're off you know, on maternity. Then the company would have folded. There's no way we could have survived that. Yeah. So I understand why people are nervous of it, mm. but it's about dealing with it appropriately, I suppose. Yes, definitely. And dealing with it fairly. Yeah. And I also think something you said, actually, were two things that just struck a chord me. One is about you saying about challenging behaviour. Mm. I heard an expression the military have that behaviour you walk past is behaviour you accept. Mm. So you're mandating, you're saying that's okay. So yeah. if you don't challenge it, you're saying it's okay. And I mm. think, yeah, that's really important. Definitely. So we must be yeah. more confident, not just as managers or leaders, but as people, just to say, hang on a minute, that's, that's not, not right. right. Yeah. And the new Violence Against Women and Girls Charter mm. is talking about wanting to make misogynistic behaviour as socially unacceptable as drink driving was, which I thought was yeah, a really, that's a really or good has point. become, this yeah. is a really good analogy, is mm. 40 years ago, I can remember my dad, going to a party with us and him drinking and driving us yeah. home and that was kind of mm. accepted. Yeah. Um, now you wouldn't dream of yeah, letting anyone in a car yeah. and drive children yeah. around having exactly. had a drink. Yeah. So they want to get to the same point where it's mm. okay to say to someone who says something a bit misogynistic or a bit off and you say, you know, that's not okay, yeah. just let it go, you know, mm. but it, it is hard, but we're mm. getting there. Yeah, and I think only by challenging that and people being <clears> quite brave really to challenge that and say that's not, not only not funny, that's really not appropriate. No. <laughs> and then moving on from that. But then that does need organisational support. If people are going to say that, they need to not be ostracised and they need to be yeah. support. Again, looking at your bullying and harassment policies and making sure that you're addressing those issues within that is important, I think. But it's about training too, isn't it? Because yeah. we are all a product of culture and upbringing mm. and what was acceptable in our time yeah. and wasn't then. Mm. One thing I hate is people being judged from their behaviour of 30 years ago by the standards of today. So they look yeah. back and go, oh, look at how terrible that was. Well, yeah, we can say it's terrible now because mm. we've all learned and educated. Yeah. But that back then, that was... That. Yeah. yeah. So it's about language. And in British Chambers of Commerce is pushing companies' house to change all the documentation to be gender neutral. Mm. So to not have chairman, but chairperson. Yeah. You think it's simple. Yeah. <laughs> it's meeting with huge resistance. <laughs> yeah. But why is that but difficult? Why? Yeah. Why, why is that difficult? But it's those steps that help, I think, towards this agenda, really. Yeah. The other thing as well that I think is a quite easy way of doing it is by looking at unconscious bias training. Because a lot of the people yeah. and the perpetrators, if you like, that came out within my study, they weren't intentionally meaning to be called. Of course they weren't. Most of them signed up for research that they knew was about gender stereotyping. Those people, they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. But some of the things that they were saying were really quite shocking. But one of the things I think will really come out of this is if people 
people do review their unconscious bias training and discuss some of the issues facing caregiving fathers as part of that training, then quite simply it can be addressed. Like we all do when we attend these training Mm. courses, quite often you go through the process, you think, God, I didn't even realise people did that. And actually that does happen and I have seen that. And now I'm more aware I won't make those jokes again that I was just trying to be friendly. But I never thought it could be taken like that. I love having my stereotypes challenged. I love having that sort of, did I really do that? I did a piece of work on inclusive growth about looking at CVs. And Mm. I get now about the taking age out and gender and all that sort of Mm. thing. I get all that. But one thing I hadn't realised I'd done was inadvertently discriminate by address mm. because I'd spent 17 years in the police service yeah. and a CV would cross my desk with a particularly dodgy part of mm. the city and you'd think mm, they must mm. be rough yeah what a terrible thing to do mm. and I wasn't even aware I was doing it till it was mm. pointed out that that's why so it came about because they said you remove address and I'd say why and they'd say well, what do you think of this address and I'd go dodgy and they'd go, well, that's why yeah because right. you've already yeah. judged that person mm. before you've even met them yeah exactly so. and part of my day job I'm a lecturer at the university and I teach HR to undergraduates and master's students and one of the things that we discuss in that is that it's quite naive to say none of us have got biases and prejudices we have but what's important to be aware of what they are and to manage them it's quite hard if you read a CV for example and someone is the same age as you they went to the same university they studied the same things it's hard to not prejudge that person oh we're going to be really friendly I really like that person it's very very hard but if you know that you do that you can counter that and you can be aware of that and actually I need to be more measured because I can see already I'm being a little bit biased about that absolutely I heard that Joanna Lumley said she decides everyone she meets she's going to love I'm just going to love this person that I'm about to meet they're going to be really interesting (laughs) and fascinating and she works back from there with my rather cynical 17 years in the police I work the other way. I'm very suspicious about this kit. And then hopefully they beat that out of me. But actually it shouldn't be. And I like that we have those things challenged. But what I think is important is constructive conversation about it. Because if you just say to someone, oh, that's outrageous, that's a totally wrong thing to say, but you don't explain why or let them come to a realisation about why... All it does is breed resentment. And particularly in older people, I think they've had 50 years, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of that culture. And then someone says to them, you can't say that. Mm. Why can't I? Just take the time to explain. explain. And in a lot of the companies that are doing really well with their parents at work and they've got really good parental Mm. policies, a lot of them have relied on the use of storytelling. So on their website, for example, they will have a piece of camera from a dad explaining their story, how it made them feel Mm. and what the organisation's done to support them. And then seeing it from that person's point of view it humanizes it and people can think actually i did never realize that happened i'm going to make sure that yeah. i don't do that rather than just saying heads up guys you're not allowed to say that anymore okay let's move on yeah, well, why not yeah well <laughs> why can't i say it, it? Really I think mandating what work. people can't say no, especially when you're work. british doesn't work i mean <laughs> we believe work. in free speech i interviewed jabo butera from diversity business incubator mm. and i hope i paraphrase this correctly but he was basically saying white people need to stop being worried about having the conversation that black people need to stop being so easily offended mm. it's about okay well I'd rather you called me this or I'd rather you do you know why I might find that a bit off you know and just have a chat we're all human beings have a chat and I think we need to start going down that route because I worry otherwise we'll become very divisive well we also really see it don't we the sort of being woke is now considered as a derogatory term now oh he's so woke oh he's so Mm. PC because there's virtue signalling and I'm going to say the right thing and put a tick in the box without a constructive conversation it's getting the balance right isn't it I think it's really important to get the balance right to understand the sort of rationale and why you're saying something because it's very rare you'll do get some people people who will mean to cause offence to somebody and they'll mean to make their life miserable. Most people don't. No, they don't. Most people want Most to go to work don't. and have a good time at work. Unless they're on Twitter, which seems to be the... <laughs> Sometimes you know, it's a little hub of people yeah. wanting to be miserable. But generally, most people don't want to do that. 
I wish I could have this attitude, but there's two people I really admire on Twitter, James Blunt, mm. who will take any criticism and laugh at himself. Yeah. And the other one, in a very similar way, I've recently started following is Felicity Mercer, so mm. Johnny Mercer's wife. Uh, right, and yeah. people have a dig at her, and yeah. she's just so good at accepting that dig, but just... Just a little bit, yeah. Just I'll coming back and saying, yeah, yeah, very well worth watching, because um, I couldn't do it, because I would emotionally react. If someone <laughs> had a go at me, I'd be there like, how dare you, I'm... <laughs> You know, I'd, I'd probably take offence too easily, but it's probably too sensitive. But I think I like their way of dealing with it. Yeah, like, it's yeah. an interesting balance, I think, on Twitter to get it right, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. One she said, which I can tell you, is somebody described her as a Tory worm. Mm. And she said, thank you, I'm told I'm very down to earth for a Tory. And I just thought that was a nice <laughs> way of dealing with it, you know. And not that I'm political in any way. I just yeah. like the way that they are tackling that mm. sort of abuse. And Twitter has, my brother describes it as the best of the internet and the worst, because sometimes somebody will put something on that's really thought-provoking. You get lots of really supportive... Yeah comments underneath but unfortunately you also get these trolls who just vitriol so yeah and they're keyboard warriors as i mm. call them i hate that people who would never say it to your face to reach people isn't it and to share for example in my role to share your research but also to reach out to people who you admire and you see their view it's such a good way of reaching out to people but yeah certainly for people with a high profile it must be a nightmare how you cannot get lost in those comments yes. it must be so difficult ricky gervais I can't repeat anything he says, but he's very interesting on Twitter too because <laughs> yeah. he takes no prisoners. But there we go. Anyway, we didn't mean to talk about social media <laughs> and the ills of that. We were talking about your book and the fatherhood forfeit. Yes, is it, it is, generally yeah. available? Yeah, Can we generally all... available. You can get it on Amazon or the usual places. Yeah. And it's called Caregiving Fathers in the Workplace: Organisational Responses and the Fatherhood Forfeit. But if you Snappy connect, title. Snap <laughs> Sorry. It, yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's an academic careful. piece. Yeah, 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 it is an academic piece. I was hoping for something shorter, but afraid not. <laughs> we needed to get all those keywords in there. <laughs> but certainly, if you are looking to get it, if you sort of connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter or anything like that, you can see all the links there. That's a little bit easier, Great. probably. And it's Dr. Jasmine Cullen. That's right. Yeah. Right. Just before we finish, I need to find out about you. What about you? Who are you? Mm. Where are you from? Where do you live? What's your family like? What do you do? Okay. We need to know about you. Okay. So I'm a lecturer at the university. I've been there for nearly nine years, I think now. I've got three daughters, all teenagers now. The eldest is 19, the middle daughter's 15, and the youngest is 13. I live in North Mayo, lived there for about 15 years. So just a busy working mum, really. And yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's you. And apart from writing books and doing a PhD mm. and being a university lecturer and a mum, what else do you do? What do you love doing? I mean, you buy the water, you Yeah, water we buy the water. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge swimmer myself, but the girls are always in the water, so I like going down to the water with them. Yeah, just like spending time with the girls, really, and just trying to get out as much as possible. We like holidays. We're a big holiday family, so we do a lot of holidays. A lot of travelling. Yeah, which is so nice that that's back happening again. It was a painful two years. Wasn't it just? <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Um, really appreciate you joining us. And one more time, the title of the book... Caregiving Fathers in the Workplace, Organisational Responses and the Fatherhood Forfeit. <laughs> By Dr Jasmine Callan. That's Thank right. you for yeah. joining us, Jasmine. Thank you. If you're not already a Chamber member and you'd like to join, membership starts from as little as £245 per annum plus VAT. Your business can gain yearly benefits in excess of £2,200. Check out the membership section at devonchamber.co.uk. Be part of something bigger and join today to connect, grow and succeed with the Devon and Plymouth Chamber. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. 
Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. <laughs>